Good afternoon. It is Wednesday, the 12th of April 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, uh, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border, and our very own nursing correspondent, Debbie Evans. And we're also delighted to have a guest with us today. Uh, it's good to be back. Yes. But let's get straight on. And Joe Biden is in Belfast. Uh, here he is arriving, getting off. You know, he didn't trip on the stairs uh, this time, uh, so that was all good. But I just want to give a slight health warning for the next image because uh, this he and uh, Rishi went tripping off into the night together. Creepy, uh, arm, creepy Joe. Arm in arm. Yes, they were very excited. Now, uh, many people not calling him Creepy Joe for this, uh, for this particular visit, many people calling him Provo Joe, uh, because, of course, uh, Joe Biden isn't really here. Well, first of all, we should say he isn't really here for the peace process or the anniversary of the peace process. He's probably more likely here for uh, the launch of his presidential campaign. And he wants to grab the Irish contingent, the Irish vote in the United States. But of course, we should remember if we go back a couple of years, uh, the Mail hosted or published this article, picture of Joe Biden with Jerry Adams, an IRA chief who tried to kill an army officer emerges as former Sinn Féin president says he discussed a united Ireland, and this was the image uh, which the mail says emerged. Now, the lady in the middle there is Rita O'Hare, uh, who was uh, arrested in Northern Ireland in 1972 for the attempted murder of a British Army warrant officer. Uh, she uh, was let out on bail for some reason and skipped off to Dublin, uh, and uh, then uh, there were attempts to get her extradited back to the uh, north, back to Northern Ireland, but she, while she was in the Republic of Ireland, spent three years in Limerick Prison for uh, smuggling explosives on behalf of the IRA. So uh, this was an active uh, IRA member, which uh, Joe, very keen to put his arm around. Uh, I think we do understand his position there. David, have you got any thoughts briefly? Well, um, I, th I think the uh, good people of Northern Ireland have called it correctly in this. And I'd also point out that he's sitting there with Jerry Adams and all of the um, a concern over the child abuse allegations uh, circling around Sinn Féin uh, and the Adams clan in particular doesn't seem to bother him. I think that's quite interesting. And of course, Jerry Adams uh, and Sinn Féin are now for, uh, putting forward a very progressive uh, woke agenda. It's Brits out and immigrants in. It's not Ireland for the Irish anymore. Oh no, uh, it's, that's, it's quite the reverse. It's internationalist. And it's, uh, it's the agenda that Joe also seems to be following in America. So it seems to be a meeting of minds, that one. Uh, absolutely. Uh, OK, then let's just move on to this. Uh, and GCHQ has a new uh, leader, a great leader, incoming director of GCHQ's Anne uh, Keast-Butler. Uh, she said, I'm joining a world-class team of people from diverse backgrounds with a broad range of skills who share a singular focus on making our country safer, more secure, and more prosperous, I can't wait to start. Now, what's her background then? So she uh, is currently serving as Deputy Director General of MI5. Uh, she's going to be the first woman to take up this post. Uh, she succeeds Jeremy Fleming, who uh, announced that he was leaving the job in January, and she will take up the job in May. Uh, and uh, so she, as I say, Deputy Director General of MI5. Prior to that, she spent two years on secondment from MI5 to GCHQ as Head of Counterterrorism and Serious Organised Crime. Uh, and uh, then she was also uh, helped to launch the National Cybersecurity 
program. Um, so I believe this is the first uh, female uh, incoming director at GCHQ. And uh, well, Jeremy Fleming did say that he was hoping very much that a female would get the job. Uh, and it looks like uh, a female has. I, I just wanted to comment on the fact that she's going to make the UK more prosperous. So what does that mean? That we're going to use facilities of GCHQ to undermine fair competition worldwide in order to um, you know, give the UK a helping hand. Could be. Uh, David. David, yeah. I very much doubt GCHQ know anything about making the country more prosperous, but that's not what I wanted to comment. I was wondering if... Um, if she could um, claim a greater level of diversity um, if she hadn't been to Merton College, Oxford. That seems to be a rather standard for GCHQ, is it not? Uh, I think we need Alex to comment on that. But uh, <laughs> We take your point. Well, we'll keep that question for when he comes back. Uh, okay, let's move on then to the, uh, to the leaked documents because this, of course, uh, getting all kinds of coverage in the mainstream press. Uh, very few of the leaked documents actually being published by the mainstream press uh, for whatever reason. Yeah, the Daily Mail has covered. They, they've published a couple of them. Uh, active have pu published this one uh, and so on. So uh, let's uh, have a look and see what the Ukrainian response to this was. Perhaps unsurprising. Let's do a quick translation on this. Uh, Russia, uh, and this is already an axiom, has dropped out of the global agenda, but sometimes she still tries to organize large-scale compromising campaigns through conditionally neutral sources. The leakage of documents about the alleged scenarios of Ukraine's counteroffensive or about uh, assessments of the perspectives of the Middle East is a typical game of the Russians. So Ukrainian government very keen to, uh, to blame it on the Russians. Uh, well, what has the Russian response been? Well, here's uh, Dmitry Peskov. He's saying, we don't have the slightest doubt about direct or indirect involvement of the United States and NATO in conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, well, of course, it makes the whole story more complicated, but it can't, cannot influence the final outcome of the special operation. And the point here is that Dmitry Peskov's comments didn't include anything about leaked documents. They're not relying on these documents, it seems, uh, to draw their conclusions about who's doing what on the battlefield. Yeah, well, I'm not surprised that the Russians, excuse me, have reacted like this. Uh, so the Department of Justice has now opened an investigation into uh, who has uh, carried out these apparent leaks. Uh, and I suppose in the process, they're confirming that these documents are genuine, uh, Brian, but uh, certainly some people uh, suggesting, and the Ministry of Defence uh, right up front suggesting that, well, they might be genuine, but we shouldn't take anything they say on them uh, as being correct or true. Uh, well, <laughs> so how, how do you how do you hold those two positions at the same time? Well, they've got a big problem because the uh, overwhelming comment on these papers is that they are genuine. The area where, of course, they've attempted to spin it is when there's been talk of uh, the ca the respective Ukrainian and Russian casualties. But we'll come on to that. I thought we should just have a little bit of a look through and uh, a comment on, on what's actually come out. So if we uh, bring in some of the key points here. Um, this is obviously fundamental. The US admits the documents are real and it claims that an investigation is underway, uh, quite rightly. Um, the security classifications are important because stuff that's got top secret and secret on it, this has to be very carefully protected. I'm going to say particularly top secret as there's a huge jump between secret and top secret. 
Um, and um, there's also additional caveats as to who can see the information, whether it's just US eyes or it's NATO or it's with Ukraine and others. So there's a spread of the documents, but the key bit is that the moment you see top secret, you know that something major, there is something major here. And um, I will be very interested to see what comes out of the investigation. So the release documents are a selection of individual papers and briefing summaries. They don't appear to include whole documents, and you get clues for this because some of the pages are in a sequence, some are not, but nobody at the moment is talking about whole documents. I think in general, these are relatively short, what I will call briefing documents, and I'll come on to that in a moment. So if we try and uh, have a little bit more of a look through, these briefing topics include this, Russia-Ukraine status of the conflict as of the 1st of March. And if we go into that particular document, it's got information uh, which includes a map with disp disposition of Ukrainian and Russian troops. It's quite detailed because it's down to battalion numbers and names. It's got a brief timeline of battlefield and military support events and details of battlefield losses. Now, this is the area where there's controversy uh, because the figure um, is, uh, is showing Russia at 16 to 17 and a half thousand. Uh, sorry, I've got Russia in there twice. Uh, killed, killed in action, wounded, and Ukraine 61 to 71 and a half. And uh, the media are very keen to put out that this is showing that the documents have been doctored in some way. Um, but of course, if we look at that basic ratio, the Russians losing less men than the Ukrainians, that's been true throughout the whole of the uh, campaign. But just to illustrate the point, this is the BBC with comment on the documents. Ukraine war, who leaked top secret US documents and why? And in, in it, of course, is comment on the casualty figures. Um, so they're saying that within these estimates, um, the US is estimating that 189,500, sorry, between 189,500 and 223,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. And the equivalent figure for Ukraine is between 124,500 and 131,000. Um, they are saying this is in line with ballpark figures. What makes this statement by the BBC ridiculous is that consistently all of the informed observers have commented on the fact that Russia is massively outshelling Ukraine. And that is on every battlefront in, in the Ukraine war at the moment and overwhelmingly uh, casualties result from shelling. So we've got a, we've got a mismatch here that uh, Russia is out shelling Ukraine, uh, but apparently Ukraine is suffering less casualties than Russia. Um, is, uh, is the BBC just simply lying here or are they conflating uh, actual Russian casualties with casualties from the Donbass that they're calling Russian? No, that, well, in my opinion, they're lying because you can go back into earlier BBC reports where they've actually had to admit that the Russians' own figures of their own casualties are about right. So I think this is a massive propaganda exercise by the BBC where there's been real damage done by this, the, the documents that have been released. But the BBC, of course, doing its best to confuse and mislead the British public. But if we move on through, uh, we've got this one, US allied and partner uh, UAF combat power build 
and the date for that is uh, February the 23rd, but uh, it's 1800 Eastern Standard Time, is uh, at the top of the document. And this has got a detailed briefing sheet showing Ukrainian units with intended US, NATO and other equipment types, estimated delivery dates, percentage delivery achieved and training timescales. And that percentage delivery achieved, for example, is uh, extremely interesting because you can see the whole um, logistics supply exercise struggling and failing um, as they try and get the, the equipment they think uh, Ukraine needs. If I go on to the next one, that was entitled Russian-Ukraine Joint Staff J345 Daily Update for Start Date Plus 370. Uh, we've got tables which include US forces composition and disposition external to Ukraine. That was particularly interesting to me. Special forces in Ukraine, changes in activities in the last 24 hours. Uh, training activities for Ukrainian troops, U.S. recce operations, logistics deliveries, especially shells and high miles effectively, as well as comment on what must be high level significant meetings and briefings. The Spanish get a mention, but they're also talking about other organizations. And this brings us on to comment from yourself, Mike. Well, yes, the, the special forces in Ukraine. So the, the, just to show the numbers, the UK leads the way with 50 uh, special forces personnel in Ukraine. Uh, then that's followed by Latvia with 17, uh, France with 15, the United States with 14, and the Netherlands with one. So those are the main uh, NATO special forces in Ukraine, but UK out in front. Yes. And uh, I, I think they would have been there from well before the start of the war itself, because, of course, uh, NATO, US, UK were building up the forces. So uh, let's just carry on through. We've got another document. It's only one. Well, it's document is one page. In fact, page 11, it called itself Donetsk. Access. It has no security markings. It gives a map of the Donetsk Oblast uh, detailing the war axis with key topographical features of Ukrainian and Russian forces with dispositions. And it's calculating in that particular area uh, about parity in the forces of roughly 20,000 men for Ukraine, slightly more for Russia. Um, there's also an additional document which details mud and freezing limits uh, and it's showing what really is feasible for vehicle movements over the open ground. Now, we're really past this because this was to do with the winter freeze. We've now come through the thaw, but it's true to say that mud is still causing problems on the battlefield. Um, if I put in some conclusions, um, there's no doubt that the high level of classification top secret would have limited the distribution and any investigation is, is likely to be individual specific pretty quickly. So I would expect a pretty rapid response to somebody being found. And if they don't, then I become suspicious that maybe these things have been leaked deliberately. But certainly the documents that we've seen are likely to be high level military or political briefing aids. Um, the documents as a whole show that uh, everything is complex in getting many nations to provide different equipment to Ukraine. It's confused and there's clearly delays in getting weapons in and getting the training completed. And the documents show that very clearly. 
Um, there is a snapshot of localised battlefield casualties, but I'm going to make the point that we've got to remember that uh, um, the uh, Ukrainian casualties to date are clearly massive, and I'm putting a minimum figure of 200,000 there killed in action because this is what trained observers are talking about. Um, the documents only give a snapshot in time, so they're unlikely to have an impact on the current strategic and tactical situation in Ukraine. Um, but what the documents do demonstrate very clearly um, is the provision of the US, UK and military and intelligence advisors to Ukraine, uh, coupled with the supply of weapons, training, intelligence surveillance data, and the integrated disposition movements and operations of major US military assets, in particular aircraft carriers, but also the electronic warfare and the battlefield surveillance, manned aircraft and drone surveillance assets in non-combat theatres. What this demonstrates to me is the fact that the US, UK and NATO are at war with Russia. This is not a war between Ukraine and Russia. This is a full-blown uh, proxy war with the US, UK and NATO uh, involved. Um, uh, there's been some talk that this will affect the Ukrainian spring offensive. But if I, if I just summarise the comment on screen at the moment, again, the trained, knowledgeable, qualified, independent commentators are very sceptical about the ability of Ukrainian forces to mount any significant counterattack due to the damage the killed in action on the military and the fact they've got this mismatch of uh, armour and uh, infantry fighting vehicles. They lack ammunition and missile defences, and there's nearly a complete lack of Ukrainian air force. So the commentary overall is there may well be some attacks, but this is not going to be retaking major parts of Ukraine. And I'll, I'll just end uh, on this one. There's also now... Um, reports of a CIA leak. Um, of, well, this is CIA operatives in Belarus, Russia and Ukraine. I'm just taking this at face value, but the inference is that there is more to come out. And just to stress that on the battlefield at the moment, uh, there's reports that everything is stagnated. No, what's happening is major interactions along the whole line of contact. Um, but at uh, the moment, the Russians are staying put, waiting to see what the Ukrainians do. Bakhmut is still the main area of battle. And uh, this excellent map by Weeb Union shows the scale of Bakhmut relative to the scale of other areas that the Russians have taken. And their policy at the moment is still to take Bakhmut piecemeal, which limits Russian casualties and is maximising Ukrainian casualties. And in the last few hours, there's been a major breakthrough again inside uh, Bakhmut. The map has changed orientation, so it's laid on its side. Uh, but the report is the Russians have now taken the central train station and uh, they are able to uh, start moving into softer areas of the city before they take the last reinforced position to the west of the city. So casualties, horrific, and reports are of Ukrainian casualties up to 10,000 a month while this battle has been going on. And the Russians have now shown that they're prepared to use heavy weapons in the city in order to simply clear out the Ukrainian forces. So really bitter fighting. 
uh, very brave actions on both sides, but it's not looking good for Ukraine at the moment. Indeed. Okay, let's uh, come, well, are we coming back to the UK? But certainly on this completely changed the topic here, David, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race icon, Jinx Monsoon joins Doctor Who in major role. Where does where does this take us? Uh, well, this this is actually for uh, Debbie. Oh, is I'm it? Right. Give her an easy introduction. That if anybody takes the trouble to look at UK uh, media reports, whether it's the papers in in U, in UK or it's the BBC or it's other media channels, they will see that serious reports on what what is happening around the, the globe, including the war in Ukraine, are intermixed with constant. Uh, comments and articles about the trans agenda. So our switch here in the news may appear strange, but actually it's completely in line with reporting in Ukraine, uh, in UK at the moment. So, so Debbie, hand over to you. Hello, and thank you. First of all, thank you ever so much to everybody that's wished me well. Um, I did have a head cold. Colds do still exist, but thank you very much, and I'm feeling a lot better. So yeah, I just wanted to highlight to parents, really, what they can expect to see on their screen. So now we've got Jinx Monsoon, who you can see on your screen, um, from the RuPaul Drag Race uh, class, is going to be starring in Doctor Who, apparently in a significant role. So um, there we've got uh, Doctor Who. And then we can go on to Barbie, because let's not forget Barbie. So Barbie's now going to feature a transgender actor. This is Harry Neff. And uh, according to Harry, uh, Barbie's going to this Barbie that Harry is portraying is going to be a doctor. So there's just two things I wanted to highlight for parents, but also, you know, something that I thought was an April Fool, but I, I really hoped it was, but it isn't, was something that I saw online called the Trans Vengeance Activist Day or the Trans Day of Vengeance. And you can see it there on your screen. Now, thankfully, this was cancelled because it was dated April the 1st. I thought, oh, it's got to be a, an April Fool. But then I looked um, online and I can see a lot of videos of very radical trans activists, you know, some with holding guns, some quite threatening. And this event apparently was cancelled because they didn't believe they were going to be safe. But it was apparently going to be quite a radical protest. So something else. But then going from the sublime to the ridiculous, um, I noticed that the Pope has now become interested in talking to young people, especially about gender and identity. So there's this new series on this new program called The Pope Answers, made by Hulu Production. And you can see there that it's talking about young people from all over the world meeting with the Pope with the aim of conveying their main concerns of their generation, which happen to be all about gender and sexual identity and sexual training and everything. But do you know what? Don't take my word for it because I've got a little clip. Have a look at this. Eres el capo de los capos, o sea, capo en el sentido del más alto de la pirámide, ¿no? El Big Boss. Cerca. ¿Cuánto cerca? Silencio. Ustedes no se movieron. Son la piel de Judas, prepárese. Y el programa era que iban a hablar con el Papa. Es aburrido ponerse a hablar con un cura, ustedes. Pelota al centro y empieza el partido. 
¿Usted tiene nómina? Si tiene móvil. ¿Sabes lo que es una persona no binaria? Si yo no fuera feminista, ¿sería mejor cristiana? El tema de la pederastia en la iglesia. Fui católica, muy creyente, ya no soy católica. Pero me da la sensación, al menos por lo que ve en mi entorno, que la gente está decepcionada con la iglesia, no con Dios. A usted no le genera contradicción todo esto. La coherencia es lo que más nos cuesta a los cristianos. Quisiera preguntarle a usted mismo que si usted es feliz y si alguna vez se ha sentido solo. Existe el aborto. ¿Qué hacemos con estas mujeres nosotras en, en la iglesia, ¿no? como institución? Y nunca he conocido a ninguna que se haya arrepentido de en la puerta del abortorio y decir voy a dar una oportunidad a esa vida. Yo aprendí mucho de ustedes. ¿eh? A mí me hizo mucho bien y les agradezco el bien que me han hecho. So as you can see, the Pope answers, but also the Sky News reported that the Pope has described sex as a beautiful thing in that documentary. Um, he's praised the virtues of sex in a documentary released, that the one that you've just seen, as one of the beautiful things that God has given to the human person. And I actually sent that story, you know, to Alex, and Alex sent me just a genius email back, really, with how does the Pope know? Uh, I mean, you know, how can the Pope answer all these questions? However, sadly, it doesn't stop with the Pope, but we've also got the Dalai Lama, who's been involved in some very controversial um, video. I, I spare, I'm going to spare you all from the video, but that it is online. But he's apologised after this video emerged, showing a spiritual leader kissing a child on the lips and then asking him to suck his tongue at an event in northern India. This isn't the first time that the Dalai Lama has said inappropriate things, but that's just to show you what's going on. I don't know if anybody's got any comments. Well, I think we're <laughs> there's a silence in the studio, Debbie, because this stuff is coming in so hard and so fast. And clearly it's orchestrated. What's happening in UK is happening in the US. It's happening in Spain. It's happening in Italy. So whatever's driving this really unpleasant agenda seems to be beyond above and beyond the nation state. But I think our relative silence says it all. Unless you'd like to comment, David, I'm watching your face. Well, just a, just a couple of points. Uh, it's happening in New Zealand as well, as Posey Parker demonstrated when she went there, and she, she was met with a violent reaction. Uh, we've seen uh, a, a, occasional outbursts of violence in Scotland at, at trans rallies. Um, it's, it's certainly um, very aggressive behaviour. Uh, and this seems to be a major problem within the trans movement. There's, there's a great deal of aggression, there's a great deal of rage and anger, um, much of it directed against women. And we've seen quite a number of cases of women, sometimes elderly women, being violently assaulted at, for example, the Let Women Speak um, event that Posey Parker organised in New Zealand. Um, this level of violence is concerning. It doesn't seem to have a limit. It, it seems to consider itself justified. And um, it's part of the whole agenda where um, peaceful, uh, peaceful conduct is being characterised as violence and that, that justifies a violent response. The silence is violence. If you do not agree with me, then you're a Nazi and I can punch you in the face. That type of reasoning, that type of uh, self-justification seems to be everywhere within um, the, the trans movement and the, and the broader kind of woke um, uh, ideology. 
Yes. Okay, David, let's uh, move on then to, uh, well, Scotland, first of all, and go ahead. Well, yes. So we have here Edinburgh News reporting um, a, a case that was greeted with some sh shock and horror in Scotland. Um, this is uh, Sean Hogg, a rapist who attacked a 13-year-old girl in uh, Dalkeith Country Park. Uh, he's walked free from court. He's been convicted. Um and he's not been sentenced to any jail time. Uh, he's now 21. He threatened his victims, pulled down her lower clothing, um, seized her by the wrists, wrists, caused the girl to carry out a sex, act, a sex act on him, then pushed his victim's head down and raped her. She was 13. The people of Scotland cannot understand how this is not jail time. Uh, he was found guilty by a jury. Um, and when he appeared uh, in the High Court in Glasgow on April the 3rd, Judge Lord Lake said, quote, rape is one of the most serious crimes, and that's why it is tried at the High Court. Looking at the circumstances, her age and vulnerabilities are aggravating factors. For the level of seriousness, I have to consider your ability, so your liability, beg your pardon, and have regard to your age as a factor. This offence, if committed by an adult over 25, could attract a sentence of four or five years. I don't consider that appropriate and don't intend to send you to prison. You're a first offender with no previous history of prison. You're 21, you were 17 at the time. Prison does not lead me to believe it will contribute to your rehabilitation. He was sentenced to 270 hours of unpaid work. The people of Scotland were astonished by this. Um, but of course, this is now the policy. So I went looking for the policy. And here it is. This is from the S Scottish Sentencing Council. It was effective from the 26th of January, 2022. Uh, it's uh, on sentencing young people. And it said this is, uh, for the purpose of this guideline, a young person is someone who's under the age of 25 at the date of the plea of guilty or when finding of guilt is made against them. Um, and it says the best interests of the young person should be considered at every case. So it's a perpetrator we're looking at here. Uh, and must be the primary consideration when the person is under 18 years of age in accordance with the provisions of the UNCRC, the United Nations Convention of the Rights of the Child. So if a 17-year-old if a beats up a granny, the primary, not our consideration, the primary consideration for sentencing that person must be um, the best interest of the perpetrator. That seems to be very odd, and it's it's pointing to UNCRC. So, of course, the UNCRC um, was, in fact, um, uh, created, and then there was a large three-volume um, uh, uh, guide to how to apply this, a handbook on the Convention of the Rights of the Child implementation handbook on how to apply it to individual uh, legal systems. And this was written by uh, Peter Newell and his wife. Peter Newell pled guilty in 2018 on two charges of serious sexual assault um, and three charges of indecent assault um, of, a, of a boy, of boys. He was jailed for six years and eight months. Um, so we've got someone who was a convicted paedophile who wrote the guide. And if you're think they might have changed the guidebook since then. I did check. It's still got his name on it. We have it here, the Implementation Handbook for the Convention of the Rights of the Child, prepared for UNICEF by Rachel Hodgkin and Peter Newell, husband and wife team. So 
we've got a, a handbook written by a convicted paedophile, which is now informing the sentencing of young people in Scotland. Um, now, what does it say? Well, it, it goes into some detail. Uh, it says that young people are less able to exercise good judgment, more vulnerable to neg negative influences, take more risks, uh, maybe less able to think about what could happen. The cul culpability of a young person will therefore generally be lower than that of an older person who is to be sentenced for the same or similar offence. But the court shouldn't rely solely on age. Um, so it goes on and guides them on how it should be doing the sentence. The sentence must reduce the likelihood of further offending, um, must be structured to enable the young person to comply with it. That's an odd one. Do, do, we, do, we, do we do this generally for sentencing? I don't think we do. Um, we'll give the young person the opportunity to understand the consequences of their behaviour. We'll address the underlying causes of behaviour. We'll reduce the likelihood of the young person being stigmatised. We're going to protect the young person at all costs. Uh, will assist in developing, developing and maintaining positive relationships. So we see that because of the age, the whole, the whole emphasis has shifted to protecting the young person, despite what they've done. And this was a, this was a rape of a 13-year-old girl. But no, it's still, it's still concentrating on, on, the, on the, the victim and protecting him and treating him in this, this strange way. Um, J.K. Rowling had tweeted out that uh, this now means in Scotland the first rape is free because if you've not got a if you've not got a criminal conviction and you're under 25 and you rape someone you walk that that does seem to be the conclusion. Um, so I, I was I went digging further. Where did the sentencing guidelines come from? Well, they came from another document called the Development of Cognitive and Emotional Maturity in Adolescence from the University of Edinburgh, where else, also uh, published by the Scottish Sentencing Council. Um, so it says this is uh, an umbrella review um, of um, current neurobiological, neuropsychological and psychological literature. So they've done a literature review and they've come up with some conclusions. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll read one piece of this, and then I'll bring in our guest to, to dis discuss this, this particular document. So this is the core of it. Um, Scottish Sentencing Council says, during adolescence, there's an imbalance and growth pattern observed in the brain, governing emotion and mood. Areas like the uh, amygdala, amygdala uh, involved in, uh, and those areas involved in executive functions, um, such as the prefrontal cortex, develop at different rates. Converging findings suggest, this is not real hard science, that the latter brain region is last to reach maturity, leaving adolescents with immature and compromised core cognitive abilities. For much of this period, the immaturity had been coupled with increased motivation to achieve ob uh, rewards observed to coincide with puberty is thought to be the most likely underlying mechanism contributing to poor problem solving, poor information processing, poor decision making. Evidence suggests that the influence of presence of peers exacerbates these tendencies. So they're saying that young people are not really, the, their brains are not mature, they can't help it. And the, the neuroscience says that we have to then change how they're being sentenced. And that is the underlying reason why a rapist of a 13-year-old girl has been sentenced to 270 hours community service. 
Uh, at this point, I'd like to welcome Bruce Scott. Bruce, ha, you've looked over these documents. Uh, we've got some uh, more clips and extracts. Maybe you could uh, uh, give us your thoughts uh, on them. This next one here um, uh, was one that you'd picked out as particularly important. Yes. Well, the document in, in question, uh, the lead author, Susanna Rook, uh, 23 years ago, I worked with her at uh, the State Hospital in Carstairs at the High Security Forensic Psychiatric Hospital. And in, in, in it's interesting, 23 years has passed, and the same uh, faith in the Shangri-La of neuroscience to uh, solve human ills is still with us because this document proves quite clearly that the Shangri-La you know, of, of neuroscience is, is, is basically a mirage. Just a quote from, from that slide there. Notably, adolescent cognitive maturation varies between individuals and will not be the same for every individual, particularly when impacted upon by the envir environmental factors listed. Thus, the nature of adolescent cognitive development is not a process, is not a process that allows us to specify an exact age at which cognitive maturity is definitively reached at an individual level. While we do not therefore recommend the use of stringent age ranges in sentencing guidelines. It is, however, recommended that the brain's continued growth until late as 25 to 30 years of age and the resulting cognitive immaturity is considered during the judicial process. But uh, you know, the, the, problem, the problem is, as it points out throughout this document, uh, the, the measurement of this is, is, uh, is impossible to be to, to, to to individual to individual. Uh, if you if you go to slide uh, slide uh, two, if you've got there, that's that's page forty. The you got slide two there. Oh yes, you know this. They did a section on uh, psychiatric disorders, uh, and it says here, uh, although ADHD is ca characterized by a deficit in attention, other changes to cognition, such as aggressive behavior, has been associated with this disorder. Uh, aggressive behaviour can be categorised into two types, blah, blah, blah. Im impulsive aggressive aggressive was found to be a relatively common comorbidity in ADHD in children and adolescents. So what they're trying to say here is, is are children, are children uh, latent criminals of some kind if they have an attention disorder? Of course, they're identifying a lot of boys with ADHD these days. This the idea of toxic masculinity being attacked here. But of course, it goes on saying here, however, much like the existing research on other psychiatric and neurovenomental disorders previously discussed, whether this is an aggressive behaviour as a trait, state or scar-related effect remains unknown. So it is throughout this document, and, and, and it hints to other things going on in Scotland at the moment, I think, the adverse childhood experiences movement, which went quite quiet in the last three years, because the, the head queen of that, Suzanne Sadiq, who is uh, pushing for uh, uh, adverse childhood ex experiences, uh, monitoring and assessment in schools and other places, and young mothers and young young mum hub units, etc., uh, to identify at-risk people, creating basically customers. And this adverse childhood experience movement was is is uh, highly unscientific, and uh, and. If you go to, 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 to slide three, the summary of this document. Yeah, the, yeah, I, I, was, I was really struck by this as well. The, 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 the lack of any substance 
Uh, it, it reads, uh, although the field of neuroimaging is now moving is now moving to a more robust statistical format of discovery and replication in open science. In the past, it has been blighted by small sample sizes, uh, heterogeneity in terms of uh, methodologically, analytically, and recruitment-wise, and a failure to replicate. The lack of convergence in findings reflects critical theoretical methodology and analytical issues within the field that need to be addressed if our understanding of the association be between uh, pubertal and functional neural development is to be improved. Now, that, that basically says to me that the science is rubbish and we don't know much, if anything. Well, it's exactly... And, 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 that's in the, and that's in the report that overthrew everything we've known about, about offending, about, about criminal behaviour and about running a society for hundreds of years, and it's all been abandoned because of, because of this. Well, well, I, I find it astonishing. You know, what's interesting about the report, there is no mention of morals or the idea of right and wrong. They're, they're, they're making huge jumps and assumptions about uh, executive function, emotionality, uh, and, uh, and aggressivity, and ADHD, etc. Uh, they're trying to attempt, uh, you know, equate that with committing a crime of murder or a rape, and it, that's wholly inappropriate because, you know, young children know no right from wrong. They know they know when they've done something wrong. They know when they've done something bad. Uh, and so, and, and they're constantly harping on in this document about the dangers of environment, the dangers of uh, uh, stressful and trauma that, that, that makes these people become criminals. There's never any mention of uh, the, the harmful sex education in schools and, and, and exposure to this sort of stuff. Uh, th this has not been considered by the Scottish government as a harmful uh trigger. But when you sent me this document, David, the first thing that came to my mind was uh, the book by Christopher Story, the, the European Union Collective enemy of, the, enemy of its member states. And then there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a table in that, in that book where it talks about in cre in creating legislation, but imposed legislation which is inconsistent, unwanted bias in favour of the offender. Victimization of the victim, rights, not obligations, and uh, basically the justice system is 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 is, is destabilized uh, in in terms of this kind of new world order or world government, and uh, and this this use of neuroscience, which is neuroscience, is, as the document shows, is not improving to the state where we we can cure or heal through these findings because they're so blunt. But the only way they can be used is in a transhumanist, in a, in a biosecurity fashion. People like uh, Michel Foucault and the philosophers Herbert Dreyfus, for example. They, 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 this is when political problems become neutralised into sort of scientific issues. And, and this, these, these very blunt technologies can be used to, to uh, affect individuals on a case-by-case -case basis in a, in a punitive way. But, but this transhumanist uh, it's, 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 you can imagine the applications if someone's got a, an overactive amygdala in a offender what will they do? Oh well we could subdue the amygdala with electrical impulses or an implant of some kind this is this is where it's going and it's 
it's anti-human and it's it's transhuman. I think the, uh, the it's it's disingenuous this document that this sort of half thing on about neuroscience and uh, it's quite clear. It, 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 yeah, if we just go to the final slide on this, uh, on the main conclusions they reached. So without really there being anything substantial, they concluded that it, uh, they have to ensure the adolescent's ability to engage in the process and their fitness to plead. Uh, so that's suggesting that adolescents are basically imbecilic um, or, or, or could be. Uh, considering an, an adolescent's culpability relative to their cognitive maturity and linked ability during sentencing. So this produces the, the kind of uh, bizarre sentencing we've just seen. And consider sentencing decisions with, re with reference to the potential to expose an individual to additional contextual and behavioural factors which may inhibit or disrupt typical cognitive development. So up until 25 or 30, you have this almost get out of jail free card. Um, and it's, it, it does undermine, as you pointed out there quite correctly, Bruce, uh, confidence and reliability in the system. The, the entire criminal justice system becomes a, 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 a mystery uh, that produces bizarre and counterintuitive results, as the one we've just been discussing. Thank you very much for that, Bruce. Uh, we'll come back to this next time, and hopefully you can join us for that. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much, David and Bruce. Uh, okay, let's uh, move on then. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, remember, we are putting up our membership fees uh, at the beginning of May, and uh, but if you get in now, then... You will stay on the current rate, so please join us if you can. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but please do share any material you find on the various platforms, uh, especially from ukcolumn.org or ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Excellent. Uh, Debbie, would you like to say a few words about your blog? I would indeed. Thank you. Yes, please do go and have a look at my blog because anything that we've covered um, or we can't cover in the news, I try to pop in and it's normally covering all health stuff and there's plenty more jabs to come, folks. So if you want to see what's coming down the line in the UK, especially, then do check out my blog. Excellent. Do you want me to carry on with the NHS? No, no, we've a, we've we've a few more things to cover. Let's just pop this on screen. So it's another reminder about the uh, streamed um, AV event on the twenty third of April, which uh, is being facilitated, obviously by UK Column. Um, but we're delighted uh, to see Mark Anderson is uh, one of the named speakers there. So we would encourage you to support this event because it's part of the work uh, to get Alternative View back on its feet and uh, making a success of the um, hotel-based event in October later in the year. And uh, I'm sure our viewers and listeners will be pleased to hear this. We're delighted to say that we recently did an interview with Andrew Bridge, an MP. It uh, will be streamed out at one o'clock on Tuesday the 18th. And um, I, I've got to say, really, really interesting interview and Andrew Bridgen standing up to be counted as he talked about his experiences following speaking out on matters to do with COVID-19 and vaccinations. So I uh, encourage you to watch out for that uh, particular interview. Uh, we'd also like to give a mention to the London rally, which is happening this uh, Saturday. Saturday. Um, uh, so Tra Trafalgar Square, 12 to 3 p.m. Um, uh, well, it's no to the uh, ULES, so it's an anti-15-minute city and ultra-low emission zone. 
uh, event. So please get along to that if you can. Okay, Patrick Henningson will be one of the uh, speakers on that. And uh, linked in with it is apparently this referendum on ending government's economically costly Ukraine-Russia policy. So if you are motivated, have a look at that uh, petition and, uh, and obviously sign up if you agree with what's being proposed there. Uh, okay, <laughs> okay, where does that take us? That takes us on to uh, Debbie, who's going to give us an update about what's happening in the NHS. Yeah, sorry, folks, it's not great, great news. But um, as we all know, the junior doctors are staging a four day strike. Now, this is catastrophic, honestly, this is beyond. So the Independent have reported that actually mums have had their caesareans cancelled. Funerals have been cancelled. Moving of bodies has been detained and delayed. Um, People are are going through a lot of grief with, with all of this. And what's worrying too is that the consultants that were working last time when the junior doctors went off, only half of them have decided to work this time because they say they're exhausted. So this is a really big deal. And everybody's reporting it to the point that um, Matthew Taylor, who's the CEO of the NHS Confederation, he's got a lot to say, including 350,000 appointments um, will be cancelled. And basically, patients aren't safe. You know, this is the National Health Service you know, let's let's try to digest this because we've only got the NHS in the United Kingdom and we are all being told that it's not safe because the junior doctors, which is pretty much every doctor under consultant grade, is on strike. So very worrying, although Stephen Powis at the NHS, director in the NHS, says that emergency care will be covered. Now, I've heard this morning, I heard a report that there were a couple of hospitals that might have to close their A&E in the next day or so because it's completely overwhelmed. But that's a story just to to wait for. But um, if you can't, get to the NHS, what do they tell you to do? Phone 111. Well, apparently not now. You can't phone 111 because you can't get through. Apparently three and a half million people gave up before getting through. That's 17.8%. And the wait time was 25 minutes. And I know from experience in my own family, how long my family have have waited on 111 to the point where they've just gotten in the car and they've gone either to the doctor's surgery or to A&E. But many people ask me, what can we do about the NHS? What can we do? Well, you know what? Please go and have a look at the latest job um, vacancy that's coming up because pretty much everybody that I would imagine that's watching this would be eligible to apply. So there are three positions for a non-executive director of NHS England, and this is attending the board meetings. So please do go and look it up because that's something that you can really do. And talking of NHS board meetings, I watch them so you don't need to. But in this week, uh, in this month's uh, NHS board meeting, which was only published a few days ago, Two of my big takeaways in that is that there's going to be an underspend, an underspend in the NHS, who heard of that, of 125 million. But don't panic because 100 million of that is being ring fenced for vaccines. Now, I don't know what kind of vaccines they're ring fencing for, but I can tell you that there's a new jab just out, even to sober you up if you're drunk. And it's called FGF. 
021 if anybody's interested. Um, so, and also when you go to the emergency department now or A&E, you might not see a friendly desk with a receptionist behind it. You might have to log in via an iPad. So the NHS board were quite keen to, to promote this. So that's the NHS board. But if we go back to the MHRA board, which, of course, is one of my most favourite occasions, um, you'll be glad to know that it's gone up on YouTube in its entirety. And our wonderful Cheryl Granger is there. She hasn't been edited out. And I've just highlighted two, two screenshots. And the first one is Cheryl trying to put her question about there being... Um, all of these adverse reactions, one in 426, I think it is, doses, and Stephen Lightfoot's response, which was basically, well, I don't think we should be using this as an opportunity to discuss it. So well done, Cheryl, for getting on. Um, she made the cuts, and I'm very, very pleased with that. Um, but going on uh, to vaccine injuries, because many people are sweeping vaccine injuries under the carpet, and we're not. And um, you might remember the BBC presenter, Lisa Shaw, who died um, after her first COVID jab. Now, her husband is suing AstraZeneca. There are 75 claimants. Now, I believe these have come from VIB. Um, and they're suing AstraZeneca, which, I mean, nobody should be having to do this. But what I would like to highlight is, as, as I'm delighted that they are managing to do this as a class action. But I would just like to highlight that there are many people with vaccine injuries, especially in UK CV family, that are running out of time. There is a time restraint on claiming for vaccine damage payment. Some of them are two and a half years in and there's still no further forward. So please bear those people have thought. Um, to, keeping on the subject of vaccines, I just want to highlight something that I felt was quite shocking. My mum, who won't mind me saying, because of my age, you'll know that she's an over 75. She received a text from the NHS and she doesn't know how to forward a text to me. So I couldn't provide you with a screenshot, but I'll just read out verbatim what the text said. It said, Dear Mrs. You have been invited to book your COVID-19 spring 2023 booster vaccination. We do not know what type of vaccine you will have yet, but it may contain squalene. Please wear a mask when attending. Now let that sink in a minute. I'll repeat it. We do not know what type of vaccine we will have yet, but it may contain squalene. So my mum has no idea what, I mean, she's not going to go for it. And, and any more jabs, thankfully. But she's being, she asked me, she phoned me and she said, why wouldn't they be able to tell me the jab and what is squalene? So let's have a quick look at squalene because squalene comes from, it's an oil that comes from shark liver. Now there's a lot of contro uh, controversy around squalene. Um, it's otherwise known as M. F, that's Mike Foxtrot 59. It's it's you've all heard of adjuvants. Adjuvants are in the um the product leaflet, of course, which we don't get. And apparently this helps, it boosts the immune system to kick out a good response. So it kind of helps the vaccine. Now squalene has been in um people say it's a conspiracy theory, but it's been linked to Gulf War syndrome. So we've now got two issues, well, a lot of issues actually with squalene, sustainability, sharks, hello, 
uh, vegetarians and vegans, how, how do you feel knowing that you might have a jab? And squalene's been used many times before, specifically with GlaxoSmithKline and Novartis. So unless you get the patient information leaflet, you're not going to know what you have. So moving on then again to nasal nasal vaccines. So they're going to start, start uh, nasal sprays now. They think they could be more effective. So it's kind of like whichever way we can get you, we'll try and get you. And of course, nasal sprays um, are, are far more easier for children in effect. Um, but more worrying than that, not just nasal sprays, I found a very interesting paper and it's entitled An Oral Vaccine for SARS-CoV-2 RBD, mRNA, bovine milk derived exosomes induces a neutralizing antibody response in vivo. And the conclusion of the abstract says the results indicated that RBD, mRNA delivered by milk derived exosomes can provide secreted RBD peptide in 293 cells in vitro and stimulated neutralizing antibodies against RBD in mice. This is the most important bit. These results indicated that bovine milk-derived exosome-based mRNA vaccine could serve as a new strategy for preventing SARS-CoV-2 infection. Meanwhile, it can also work as a new oral delivery system for mRNA. Now, Dr. Peter McCulloch has written a very good article in the Canadian Health Alliance. Um, it's entitled Chinese Load Cow's Milk with mRNA Exosomes. And um, I've just highlighted the bits in red there. From a scientific perspective, these experimental steps taken by the Chinese were a stunning success. However, Given the damage mRNA vaccines have generated in terms of injuries, disabilities, and deaths, this data raises considerable ethical issues. The COVID states project has shown that 25% of Americans were successful in remaining unvaccinated. This group would have strong objections to mRNA in the food supply, particularly if it was done surreptitiously or with minimal labeling warnings. Children could be targeted with easily administered oral vaccine dosing or potentially get mRNA through milk at school lunches and other supervised meals. This also affects people that have had the vaccine. Now, I could do and I won't, but exosomes are a really big subject and it's something that maybe we'll go into on another news. But um, watch this space for exosomes because I've got a lot more to say about that. Uh, Debbie, the thing that strikes me about that issue is that, you know, we have had fluoridation of water supplies for a very long time now. More recently, the government has uh, put folic acid into bread. Uh, so th this this idea of, of mass medication of the population through things that we buy off the supermarket shelves or we take out of our taps is something that we have, or at least very few of us, have in any way uh, resisted. Uh, and of course, if it becomes normalized, then this is the inevitable outcome. Exactly, Mike. Couldn't put it better myself. Okay, let's uh, let's move uh, back to Russia again now. And uh, well, Wall Street Journal uh, journalist, here he is, uh, Yoon, uh, sorry, Yoon uh, Garanchevich. He's being held in Russian jail. Uh, he was uh, 
charged with espionage. He was arrested on the 29th of March. Uh, and, uh, well, he considered it his dream assignment to be working for the Wall Street Journal uh, in uh, in Russia. So uh, let's have a look and see what uh, John Sullivan, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, had to say about this. Well, the question then is, how, how does he get back? How does he get out of a Russian jail? And in the past, when this type of thing has happened, it's usually uh, some so, kind of prisoner yeah. swap that happens. Uh, and so he's saying that the Russians are going to expect a lot in return for a person that they consider a spy. Uh, so here is the uh, U.S. Department of State statement on it. Russia's wrongful detention of journalist uh, Evan uh, Gershowitz. Sorry, Evan, not Ewan. Uh, today, Secretary Blinken, this was on the uh, 10th, uh, two days ago, Secretary Blinken made a determination that Evan Gershowitz is, wrong, uh, is wrongly detained by Russia. Journalism is not a crime, he said. Uh, we condemn the Kremlin's continued repression of independent voices in Russia and its ongoing war against the truth. Uh, the US government will provide all appropriate support to Mr. Gershevich and his family. We call for the Russian Federation to immediately release him. We also call on Russia to release wrongfully detained US citizen Paul Whelan. Uh, so uh, Paul Whelan is a former US Marine, by the way, uh, a corporate security executive. He was convicted in 2020 on espionage charges. Okay, so let's uh, come on to uh, a more broad uh, condemnation. This is from the Media Freedom Coalition, uh, led by the UK, of course. They work together to advocate for media freedom and safety of journalists. And they said, uh, the executive group of the Media Freedom Coalition strongly condemns the Russian Federation for its detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich. Uh, 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 the detention of journalists under the guise of espionage charges is very concerning and undermines the basic principles of democracy and the rule of law. So if uh, a Western country sends uh, a spy into a country, uh, Brian, uh, under the guise of being a journalist, um, would that be a breach of the rule of law? Should they be arrested? Well, I, 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 I would have thought so. Yep. No, you'd have thought not, I think. Oh, you'll have to give that to me again. So if someone is sent to a foreign country under the guise of being a journalist, when in fact they're a spook, yeah. Uh, it would be fair enough under the rule of law that they'd be arrested, would it not? Yes. That happens for Russians or anybody that comes Indeed, to the yeah, UK or yeah. the United States. Yeah. In those circumstances, they went on to say, we condemn the Russian Federation's move to silence journalists and use its authority to intimidate and harass them. Russia must comply with its international human rights commitments and not abuse its power to suppress critical reporting. And again... The hypocrisy, I'm sure everybody understands the, the multiple degrees of hypocrisy and all this, but I'm just going to say Julian Assange once again. If the US and the UK are going to continue to, to uh, keep this man in prison uh, without any kind of judicial process yeah. in the sense that at this point he's still on remand with a view to being extradited. Uh, and in the meantime, we basically condemn other nations for uh, arresting people that are being described as journalists when we don't actually know, and it wouldn't be the first time that uh, Western countries have deployed people uh, under the umbrella of uh, a press card in order to, to spy. Now, uh, I don't know, I can't confirm this, but I have heard uh, that uh, he was there looking particularly uh, at the Wagner Group, and uh, so uh, we'll see if anything comes out on that. weapons facilities, from what I have read. Right. Where does that take us? The BBC. Oh, yes, we'll just briefly mention this. The BBC was interviewing uh, Elon Musk this morning. And, of course, uh, Musk running Twitter at the moment. Uh, Twitter has been labelling the BBC as government-funded media. 
on uh, on the Twitter website from the, for quite some time now. Uh, this is apparently, David, you'll be glad to know, this is being changed now to publicly funded media. Uh, publicly funded government funded. Well, <laughs> yeah. So, so what do you think? Does that mean we don't have to pay the uh, the license fee anymore? If it's only publicly, publicly funded. funded, publicly funded would be if it's nothing to do with the government, then there's no coercion. So you've got a choice, yeah? No, oh, maybe not. No, maybe not. Okay, let's uh, let's stick with Russia then for a second and uh, the Russian economy. Yeah, I wanted to just have a look at just how it's doing. So this is a World Economic Forum, thanks to them for this very nice chart that shows uh, Russian exports. You see how much petroleum, oils and crude uh, and, and gas it accounts for this sort of um, um, a brown section in the middle is all of that. So that's a, it's a huge proportion, well more than a third of their total exports. Um, and um, so... Very resource rich, but very dependent on exporting and selling those resources to generate income. Um, we'll go here to the Russian crude oil tracker. Uh, so this goes back to 2021. Um, and this is the where the monthly, where the, the Russian crude oil experts were going. And we see that the EU seaborne exports, pipeline exports, and the rest of Europe together, that accounted for more than half of all Russian crude oil exports went one way or another to Europe. Now, of course, there's now, a, there's now a prohibition on that. They've been sanctioned, and, and Europe, and we'll see how effective this has been, Europe's not taken Russian crude oil exports. So what actually happened to Russian crude oil production? Because you'll appreciate that you can't just turn an oil well off and on. If you actually close it down, it, it can be very difficult to actually get the flow restarted. There are major um, infrastructure um, problems that you build in when you actually shut down an oil well. It's not just a tap you can turn on and off. Well, if we look at the um, the uh, chart here of Russian crude oil production, well, you see it it dropped you know, by 25% or so um, in uh, 2020 during the great COVID scare. And it took two years to almost recover um, so that illustrates the difficulty of turning the supply on and off. It took two years to almost recover, and then it dropped again uh, at the start of the Ukraine war. But it's recovered quite quickly, and it's sitting here at just under uh, uh, 10,500, well, that's uh, uh, 1,000 barrels uh, a day. Um, so about 10.5 million uh, barrels a day currently, as opposed to 11 million before. So it's, despite all of the, uh, all of the turmoil, both COVID and the war, they, they, they're keeping production roughly where it was. If we look at uh, crude oil leaving Russian ports, uh, we see a, another interesting feature of this. It's actually gone up. The pink line here is 21, the blue line is 22, and the red line is 23. So the amount of oil that's been exported by sea has gone up very significantly. This is because the pipelines, particularly to Europe, are not being used. A quick uh, shot of this gives you an idea of where the pipelines are and the major ports that are being used to export oil through the Black Sea, through the Baltic. Um, and import oil into, amongst other places, Rotterdam. So if we look, uh, that last chart was again from 21. If we look at the situation where the crude oil's been landed by ship, 
um, over time, this, this chart here runs from 21 through 23, you see the, all the blue bars, which are the various parts of Europe, um, they start to decline um, it, once, once the war starts, and they decline very sharply. And basically, crude oil exports to Europe are all, have almost ceased now, uh, but the red section has expanded to fill the gap. The red section is non-EU, non-G7. That primarily means India and China, but some other nations as well. So Russia has been very successful in maintaining the export volume maybe not quite getting the cash for it that we would like, but maintaining the export volume and finding new customers for, for um, all the oil that they used to sell to Europe. So we see here uh, energynow.com reporting on this. Russia has to sell over 80% of its oil to friendly countries. Um, this is Deputy Prime Minister Alexander Novak uh, stating this. Uh, that uh, these countries will also receive 75% of the refined oil products. So we are no longer a friendly country in the Russian view. And this is also undermining the position of the dollar because it's the petrodollar and it's all tied up with oil sales. So we see oilprice.com reporting uh, that China and Russia are looking to challenge the petrodollar. The US dollar has been the currency of choice, um, the currency, the mandated currency for oil trade since the 70s. Um, the, the yuan's making small inroads into that, 2.7% in the market, but um, it's, it's, uh, there's, a, there's a movement for China and Russia now to find other ways because they're trading directly. There's a lot of oil coming out of Russia. It's going to China. Dollars are no good to Russia. They're looking at other ways of trading this. This is going to have a huge effect on security and the stability of the dollar. Uh, we've got another little clip here, a little uh, article from Wall Street Journal uh, to say that Japan, a US ally, they're actually buying, albeit a small amount of, of Russian oil, they're buying Russian oil, Russian oil and above the price cap. There's a price cap being imposed $60 a barrel compared to about $80 a barrel that uh, oil is trading for globally. Um, but uh, the Japanese got permission from the Americans to buy it at a higher rate because uh, they needed the oil. So. That's a quite an interesting one. Now, um, the Russians are not being able to sell the oil to Europe. European countries are relatively stable, cash rich, relatively, well, they're able to pay. They're good customers. Um, they're having to find other customers. Not all of those customers are quite as good. So here we see the Indian Express, journalism of courage, by the way, um, say the first uh, consignment of Russian crude oil is to arrive in Pakistan next month. But there's a trust deficit. Moscow's demand to import just a single cargo to see if they get paid to bridge the trust deficit. So you see, they are having to deal with people they would rather not be dealing with. They are being pushed into uh, less advantageous positions, but they're still managing to ship the oil. Um, Pakistan, just as a, as a point uh, to make it how, how risky a tra trading with Pakistan is, um, Pakistan is basically awaiting uh, IMF bailout. Um, the foreign exchange reserves fell to a critically low level. They've risen a bit, but they're waiting for a $1.1 billion uh, tranche of money from the IMF, um, and their ability to pay is in doubt. Somewhat in contrast, India's crude oil is now up to 1.6 million barrels a day imported from Russia, higher than their, their, than their imports from Iraq and Saudi. Uh, so rather than at the start of the war, 
Russia was supplying 1% of India's oil, and now it's 35%. So, thoughts on this. Firstly, um, the, uh, the, there has been an effect on Russian, ex Russian exports. They can't export via pipelines to Europe uh, the most important export, which is crude oil, anymore. They've had to find secondary sources, not quite as good. This means that the oil is having to go by sea. It could potentially be stopped by American naval power, by maritime power, but there's no sign America's prepared to do that. Um, if it's not prepared to do that, Russia is finding other buyers. Those buyers are, at least in some cases, India and China, actually quite cash-rich, quite productive countries, and are trading di directly with Russia. This is having a bad effect on the dollar's position, potentially catastrophic effect on the dollar's position. So the effect of the sanctions has not been to uh, crush the Russian economy. It has damaged it, but it's also damaged the standing of the dollar. Um, so I would have to say, in broad terms, to the point we reached now, uh, the sanctions have failed, and uh, the question that occurs to me is whether America now will push further ahead with, with a sea blockade, which is the only way to actually do something about this, but that means a huge escalation, or whether essentially the economic power is not going to be effective. Uh, the problem is if they uh, attempt any kind of sea blockade, ultimately that's going to result in... Uh presence in the South China Sea uh, and, the, and uh, so <laughs> this, this ends badly. Uh, but uh, uh, David, let's just a couple of advertisements from you then. Uh, first of all, uh, the transgender child. Yes, this is, an, this is on tonight in Dundee, uh, the excellent Scottish Union for Education uh, asking the question, are schools harming children by affirming their transgender identity? Uh, so that's at Gate Church International, uh, Perth Road, Dundee, and that starts at 6.30 tonight. Uh, a couple of adverts for uh, things on the UK column just uh, transmitted during Easter holidays. We had Peter Schiff uh, talking about uh, the insane world of uh, finance and money. And on a similar subject, uh, coming up later this week, we have Alistair McLeod, Head of uh, Research for Gold Money. Uh, I, I'm interviewing him on the subject of money, credit and banking. Okay, thank you, David. Uh, so, Debbie, uh, let's move on to bird flu. Yeah, bird flu. So the WEF are saying, what do we know? What do we what do we need to know about bird flu? Um, well, what we need to know about bird flu is that a lot of the globe is talking about bird flu, and apparently this is H five N one. So what do we need to know? Well, it's interesting that the World Economic Forum say that because it would appear that according to Scientific American, that vaccine makers are preparing for bird flu. What a surprise. What a surprise. But um, there you have it. Um, people are saying that, uh, experts in fact are saying that bird flu is not a problem, but we're going to get a vaccine anyway. Here in the UK, um, we seem to be um, ramping down a little bit. Is there such a term as ramping down? We, we seem to be sort of we're letting birds out. It's rumoured that from next Tuesday, birds will be allowed out again. However, that being said, the UK HSA are still saying 
that we're at level three so that we're basically there is there is a risk um they're looking at mammalian transmission because they've seen it in jumping species they call it jumping species when it goes to seals and foxes and dogs it's it's been found in a dog so you know, when you just get a hunch that avian flu, there's something brewing. And, and indeed, you know, when, when you look at what the agricultural world is saying, they're almost saying that we've got to live with it. This is the new normal, apparently. Um, Dr. Jill, I'm not even going to try and pronounce it. Well, I will try. Nezvorsky, an independent poultry veterinarian, said the poultry industry is moving into a new normal, which includes living with high, high path avian flu. So... Despite that, though, France, they're jumping on the bandwagon pretty quick, first out of the blocks for buying out, uh, buying up an avian flu influenza vaccine. So they're going to start their vaccination drill for avian flu this, this winter. Um, and in Japan, avian flu is so bad. They Honestly, it's terrible. They've killed so many birds, over 17 million, that they've actually run out of land to bury them. And I've just heard in the last couple of hours, because, you know, we're talking about H5N1 here, but there are other strains of um, avian influenza or bird flu. And there's one that's called H3N8, which has killed um, a human in China in the last couple of hours. So this is in the background. And I'm, I'm hearing that if we're going to be heading for a, another pandemic or more lockdowns, it could be to do with avian flu. And the final thing that I just wanted to highlight was that it would appear that researchers are preparing for SARS-CoV-3. So I'll just leave that with you. It says, for the first time, an international research alliance has observed the RNA folding structures of the SARS-CoV-2 genome with which the virus controls the infection process. So obviously, experts looking at SARS-CoV-3. Okay, thank you for that, Debbie. And we'll just end with a bit of news of uh, uh, exercises, uh, military exercises. Uh, so, of course, the, the big story over the last few days was uh, the, the uh, Chinese military exercises around Taiwan. Uh, so the People's Liberation Army have uh, wrapped up the security patrol around Taiwan and joint sword exercise, according to the uh, Chinese government. Uh, so that's good news. Uh, they deployed an aircraft carrier. Uh, Brian, I don't know what you think of that particular aircraft carrier. Well, you have to say that not as capable as the latest American aircraft carriers, but the Chinese are developing very, very quickly. And there is respect for them, even by the American military pilots. So. Yep. OK. Uh, in the meantime, in the Philippines, uh, US troops have been holding their, uh, where they are at the moment, holding their largest ever exercise. Uh, the Philippines getting a bit nervous about it, however, because uh, Ferdinand Marcos Jr. Uh, felt the need to make the point that uh, they will not allow their bases to be used for any offensive actions. This is only aimed at helping the Philippines wherever we need or whenever we need help. Uh, if no one is attacking us, they, the Chinese, need not worry because we'll not fight them. Uh, and finally, just to let everybody know, uh, the latest nuclear uh, command and control exercise taking place. U.S. Stratcom announced this uh, on uh, a couple of days ago. 
they are saying that uh, this is their annual nuclear command and control exercise. It's called Global Thunder. Uh, and uh, so that involves personnel throughout the strategic enterprise, including U.S. Stratcom components and subordinate units. Uh, and it also includes the United Kingdom personnel uh, who will integrate into senior leadership teams and work across a broad spectrum of areas, offering policy support and operational insight. What does that mean? No mention of diversity there, Mike. No, so I'm pretty no, disappointed at that. Yeah. Um, it's an exercise which is being hyped up in the present circumstances of the war in Ukraine. But yes. these things are normal. They've gone on for many years. So this is hype. Yes. Okay. We need to leave it there. I think we should. All right. We'll say to our audience, thank you very much for joining us wherever you are in the world. Stay tuned if you're a member, because we will be doing an extra in a few minutes and uh, we will see you then. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.